Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you looking to engage with regional decision makers, business leaders, elected officials, and industry professionals committed to improving downtown San Diego? Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership. As a member, you'll receive access to exclusive resources, exposure to special programming, networking functions, and additional opportunities unmatched by any other local membership-based organization. Join the driving forces behind the future of Downtown San Diego. For a 10% discount, become a member today. And just for the record, the lumpen proletariat are the unorganized and unpolitical lower orders of society who are not interested in revolutionary advancement. Exactly. So I, I think I was correct. Those are the tenants. No, no I there's, thought, that's there's not there's the small. small merchants. Okay. No, that's not the small merchants. So should I just look up? That's people who glossary been of Marxist they've been, terminology. They've been stomped on so long they can't. You can't even get them involved in the revolution. Got it. Glossary of Marxist terminology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious what the small merchants are as well. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by the Managing Editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. Senior investigative reporter Will Huntsbury is back. What's up, Will? Yo. <laughs> and reporter Jacob McQuinney. Jacob, is it? Did I really just hear you overhear you on the phone in the newsroom uh, equate pickleballers to revolutionaries? Well, of, of course. I mean, <laughs> isn't that correct? I, I mean, are they? They're, they? They? Who are? Who do they see as the counter revolutionary? The tennis. Oh, okay. Players, certainly, yeah, yeah. Not I, like the people complaining about noise or whatever. It's it's their arch enemies, the other paddle sports. Well, you have to understand also the 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 pickleballers, at least one some of the ones I spoke to, don't necessarily view uh, the tennis players as the architects of the counter revolution. They view them as kind of the foot soldiers, right? right? They view the, the like the merchants. Yes, exactly. They're yeah. the the small. The, what do they call them? The small merchants. Well, that's just a 
tease, just a tiny tease of Beef Week. It's coming up soon. Uh, it's our compendium of local beeves. Now, as I explained to the staff, this is this is ongoing disputes, not just uh, uh, not just like legal lawsuits and stuff like that, but literal like rivalries that are causing disputes and lawsuits and all kinds of actual like technical arguments. Yeah, and we're very excited to lay out a few beeves over the next couple of weeks, right? Totally. Uh, yep, we're getting beavery. But coming up on the show this week, my politics report from Saturday was about city councilman Stephen Whitburn and his former chief of staff, who is now accused of fraud. This week, Whitburn and I had a little bit of an exchange that I wanted to break down and explain. So we'll get into that. And regarding the city council this week, its members shot down Mayor Todd Gloria's housing package. It was a big deal, and it's a big deal that it stalled. We'll explain what Gloria was trying to do and why it failed. Finally, a new chapter in Will's investigation into stadium concessions has dropped. A man told the concessions company that helps manage the Chula Vista Amphitheater that some workers were paid under the table. It doesn't appear that they did anything about it. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. The Chula Vista City Council met on Tuesday, but Councilwoman Andrea Cardenas was absent. She wasn't there, and some folks were upset about it. We reported last week that Chula Vista Mayor John McCann and another city councilman had called on her to resign, and now community members are demanding some of the same. The whole scandal uh, has put a bright light on Cardenas and her brother, Jesus Cardenas. I, I talked about it a little bit last week, but I think we need to get a little bit deeper. So, Let's go. Jesus Cardenas was the chief of staff for Stephen Whipper. Now, the chiefs of staff are big deal. Like they, uh, they, they're basically the boss of the office. Obviously, the council people are the bosses, but the the staffs are truly run by the chief staff. The chief staff handles all the dirty work, all the tough political decisions that have to come into to play, all the negotiating behind the scenes. All of that stuff goes through the chief of staff office, right? Like depending now, obviously, some of the council members de- delegate more to that person, some delegate less. But it's a big role. In fact, it used to be, I'm not quite sure it's the same, but it used to be that the chiefs of staff made significantly higher salaries than the actual city council members. They they got paid like 70000 The chiefs of staff would sometimes uh, make well over 100 So mm-hmm. I think um, now that's changed as the, as the salaries have gone up for the city council members. But the point is, is like, these are big jobs. They're the showrunners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. the showrunners for all that happens. And so... Uh, Jesus Cardenas was that for Stephen Whitburn. Mm-hmm. Now, this last week, of course, or two weeks ago, the district attorney accused uh, Jesus Cardenas and Andrea Cardenas of fraudulently applying for one of those PPP loans. And we talked about that. Those were basically grants that were given to businesses for keeping their employees on payroll during COVID. And uh, they accused him of claiming 34 employees that were actually employees of Harbor Collective, a um, cannabis retailer. So that was a big deal. But that reminded me that there have always been questions about Jesus Cardenas' connection to the cannabis industry and Harbor in particular. And if you look at his Form 700, these are the disclosures they have to put out every year about their own financial interests so that people can see if they're conflicted or not. On On his 2021 Disclosure, he lists Harbor Collective 
and one other retailer and another interest group from the cannabis industry as giving him more than $10,000 or $10,000 or more in income. So minimum $30,000. Exactly. And so, again, he's doing this job. He's getting this income that he's already disclosed. And now we have the accusation that he was even more related or partnered with this cannabis company than we previously knew. Mm -hmm. But at that same time, 2021, Whitburn's office, again, the office that Cardenas is managing, was pushing forward a big change to the laws in San Diego about cannabis. Uh, Right now, uh, they allowed um, a certain number of cannabis facilities per district, right? Per city council district. It was four. There's nine districts. That's 36. Right. But they were only, at that point, seeing about 26 to 20, I think it was 25 to 27 or something retailers. And so there was a lot of pressure for them to get the other 10, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Whitburn was was trying to vastly change where these sites would be located because they had to be a, a thousand feet away from playgrounds, a thousand feet away from schools, a thousand feet from uh, residential and churches and all these things. And Whitburn's idea was to allow it to be 600 feet for a lot of those uses and no distance for a lot of other uses, especially like the senior facilities or the playgrounds. They didn't need to buffer churches. And so uh, he wanted to put that forward. He also wanted to let them stay open longer and other things. And he pushed that forward. And he got it to uh, the city's planning commission. And uh, the planning commissioners in December on December 9th, 2021, they were like, why is this? Why? It goes to the, the planning commission and they asked Whitburn's staff member, they're like, why is this coming up now? Because we look and it's it's supposed to it's supposed to go to the city council in just a few hours here. Like what do are we just rubber stamps for you here? Like what what about our input? What about the the community planning groups? Aren't you gonna go and do any of those things? And they're like, and at that point, the city the staffer for Whitburn says to them, Well, if you had a problem, we would have just canceled this meeting. And he goes through all the ways they tried to get this meeting together before the city council meeting. And if you'd had a problem, we would have just canceled it. Right. He lays out that it was more of a scheduling issue, that it's not that they're, they think it's a rubber stamp or whatever. They tried to get on their agenda earlier, but they just couldn't. And it just happens that the day they got on their agenda, they also have the city council meeting. In the meeting, they, they say to him, you got to go to these community planning groups. You've mm-hmm. got to go to these other places and get more more input. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but then that afternoon, Stephen Whitburn is at city council. He's the chair of the Land Use and Housing Commission. There has been a new city council president elected mm-hmm. by the colleagues of the city council in the days before that. So Whitburn did not support that new city council president. Shawnee Lo Rivera. So he's maybe going to lose his chairmanship so here, he the committee. Feels, he's pretty, he's not a dumb guy. He knows that in a few days, he's probably not going to be the chair of this committee. And he puts forward, he says, I would like to move that this amendment be adopted and moved to the to the um, full city council for approval. Now, again, this you, is after it went to planning. This and is planning a, didn't like hours it. after a few hours after the planning commission had said like, bro, don't love it. Slow your roll. You need to like take this to different places so i wrote that whole thing because to me it indicated like a 
The chief of staff has now even more connections, according to the DA, to the to the cannabis industry than we knew about. Mm-hmm. B, it seems like they had some urgency to get this change done. Yes. And C, there's no more important principle in local government ethics than that you don't work on something that you are getting income from or that you have a financial interest in, mm-hmm. right? If you have a farm and you're working on a rule about rezoning farms at, that might change the value of your property significantly, you kind of need to back off that decision. Sure, sure. Can we talk about, tell, tell us about the urgency, Scott, because that's the part that's interesting to me. You've got this chief of staff who's making quite a bit of money from the cannabis industry, and you have his council member, Whitburn, who represents downtown, and they're pushing this thing forward pretty hard, almost clumsily, right? Well, when he makes the motion. Desperately. He makes this motion at city council, at this land use and housing commission, and the it's like crickets. Like nobody's like second. second. No, there's <laughs> that's always what, awkward in what, city why, meetings. Why do you think that is? Why why were people not willing to support this? Well, the stated reason was that they wanted to see the city embark on and create the infrastructure of an equity program. Right. Oh. One of the big things with cannabis is it used to be illegal, and the people who uh, disproportionately got punished because of its prohibition were, were people of color mostly. And thus, you should have some sort of program in place to make sure that now that it's legal, the people making money from it are not just the people who didn't get punished when in the before times, right? Right. So they wanted that was their stated reason. We should do that before we increase access too much, right? But there was clearly some like discomfort uh, about it. Now, I wrote all that up. Connecting the dots. I wrote all that in the in in the politics report comes out every Saturday. It's a great piece of journalism. I, <laughs> great right? plug. Frequently great plug. it is. You yeah. know, last Saturday's was good. Very good. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Will. Um, I say nice things about Will. <laughs> so that came out Monday. I got a call and I got a letter from Whitburn, and he um, he was he was upset with the characterization. One, I had I had transcribed the quote of what that uh, staffer had said to the planning commission i had transcribed it slightly wrong and he was saying that was a big deal like if it, if it, it the way i had written it it sounded like a pledge that they wouldn't go to the full city council with it and what he was saying is no 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 it was just like had you had a problem with it we wouldn't go to the city council like it was a past tense right but the principle is still there sure if the planning commission has a problem with it it shouldn't go to the city council yet Right. Yeah, those two letters and apost and an apostrophe really don't seem to make that much of a right. It went from difference. would to would have. Right. Yeah. From would to would have and canceled to canceled. But if the principal would have just there. canceled, as opposed to we would just cancel. Right. So I will fully admit I transcribed that wrong. Yeah. I'm not sure it had the implication that he thinks it does or the distinction he did. Mm-hmm. But the other issue he took he took issue was was the. The idea that he was urging about this. He's like, nah, man, I didn't care. It was cool. Yeah, he's just vibing. I was trying since December to get this schedule or September to get this schedule. I had no urgency about it. I was not upset when it didn't go through. And so he was saying he would have been happy to go back through the process of taking it all to those community groups. Yeah. Okay. And and my only response to that was you despite the concern of the planning commission, a few hours earlier, you moved 
that it go forward. To me, that is de facto like, or just sort of like, how do you say it? Like prima facie, like evidence that you are trying to like make it happen. Mm -hmm. And that's an urgent thing because regardless of whether you're going to be on that committee or not, like you, you're pushing it right then. The planning commission asked you to pump the brakes and your response is get this thing to council. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, the regulations never went forward. And now the equity program, by the way, is like not doing well either. So, <laughs> but again, it wouldn't have increased the number of retailers allowed in San Diego. It would have helped them reach the limit that already exists. Yeah, right? by eliminating distances between areas and i mean maybe that's a good thing like yeah you, I, I actually personally think that that's probably something that would be okay i don't see why it's like wrong to leave a church and want to smoke a fatty you know <laughs> sue me or I guess. before you go in well yeah. it's so funny you, you may see, you may see god right that way. much more vividly <laughs> i only go to church if there's like a corn man selling that little cup of wine ain't enough dude it ain't enough <laughs> well isn't it funny though that this is this actually brings up a funny point to me like Everybody always treats in these regulations uh, cannabis retailers as though it's like a bar, right? Yeah, yeah. As though it's like a similar type of use. Right. Yeah. Like you go there and you're partying, you come out stumbling or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the most boring retailer that exists, right? <laughs> People go in, they like they, they buy it and they leave in a second. They're not hanging out. They're no. not smoking. Well, and it they're, does, especially now, they all feel like like substance apple stores yeah you know? like you you, you, go, you you go in there and and it feels like you're buying a thing of airpods yeah, you're going to the genius bar yeah, of, yeah. of weed well and and to be fair those people are geniuses when it yeah, comes to weed. no i mean that literally yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah that but to regulate it as though it does like have this impact the way a bar does mm -hmm. or way a concert venue has or whatever it's like it's weird no. to begin with yeah i mean i get like schools maybe you don't want kids to pop over and try yeah. to make something happen but they're pretty serious about the ID too. I think a lot more than liquor stores oh, for are. Sure, they seem very serious about. Yeah. It. They seem like they're making plenty of money following the rules, just as they are. Yeah, and we aren't living in like the wild west of dispensaries that that San Diego used to have. Dude, I that was crazy when like, I was eighteen. Like, oh man, oh nine or ten. Yes, it was wild. This is pre legalization. Yeah, well, well it this was, was medical. It, it, was, it, was, medical. it was, was medical, and and there was. I remember I got my medical card at this at this spot where. Right across the next door over, the place next door was the dispensary. And so I, I got my medical card, <laughs> yeah. like walked Sounds next legit. door and they like just have a bong sitting there. Everybody can can hit it. And thinking back now after a pandemic, <laughs> like that is do you, never happened do you, again. Do you want to hear my story? Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> Should we do this? Is this? Am I going to get fired? No, I don't know. So, <laughs> you will. I, went, I, I definitely want to hear it now. Are you, are you going to fire yourself, Scott? <laughs> I, went to, uh, I went to get my card. And uh, the doctor was, uh, he was like, hey, well, what do you, uh, he was really blitzed out. Like just this, like, <laughs> he looked like his hair had been in the sun for 40 years. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, he said, well, how do you primarily like to uh, ingest cannabis? And I was like, you know, honestly, I, I've been making my own brownies lately. And he's like, yeah. he's like, oh, that's, that's really good, except I'm really worried about something for you. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> and he goes, the gluten, man. <laughs> Say it one more time, though, but the gluten, man. Yeah, it was exactly like that. And I was like, wow, okay. Well, um, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, he's like, he's like, and then he proceeded to tell me how to make like my own gummies or something with wow. the glycerin. And I was like, 
All right, man. Thanks. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Genius brother. That is Thanks, such brother, a great, doctor. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't that funny that period though, where you oh, was, like you had to like it wasn't funny. To, it was awesome. You would get like a, <laughs> this transactional doctor yeah. appointment where they'd say what, like, "Do you sleep? Do you breathe?" When I went in, yeah, that was basically it. I was like. 18, I was all, all nervous and I was tired of getting ripped off like by the guy who would hang out behind the CVS or whatever. And and I went in and I'm like, I would like a medical card. And he's like, okay, what's been going on with you? And I just kind of like froze. And he's like, okay, well, most people, when they come in here, they say, I've been feeling anxious or I've, you know, been having trouble sleeping or, or you know, my, my appetite isn't great. And I my was vibe's like, not right. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, to- totally. That That's me. And he's like, all right, I'll write that down. <laughs> God. Uh, Wait, okay. To bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Fine. Wow. Um, She's like, I have no pot stories. <laughs> For your original piece, you yeah. did ask them what role Jesus Cardenas played. Yes, because this is the only thing that really matters. Yes. Did he work on this regulation? Did what he... did they say? <laughs> I cannot recall. <laughs> no, so I don't know. I, they, <laughs> I asked again. He was really upset after the piece ran, but he didn't take any time to talk to me before the piece ran. And I gave him a lot of days to to talk about it. So they sent me first a statement about how much he cared about the issue, really trying to refute the point that he was only pursuing the issue because of his chief of staff, right? Sure, sure. And so I, but then I had to follow up and say like, well, what about the chief of staff? Did he work on this? Because if he didn't, that would be significant if he recused himself or whatever. And they said, given the circumstance that he finds himself in, uh, we're not going to comment. And so all this blow up after the piece ran, uh, again, there was no point refuting that. So I think we can deduce that they did let him work on it and that he did work on this. And and that seems like it's a big deal and it might play out. Um, it might have some further impact in this discussion about uh, the scandal going forward. So um, I, I after the story rant, I did a piece of sort of responding to the response, uh, and and I described it as Whitburn uh, demanded a retraction because he 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 had you know demanded, yeah. demanded a retraction. Yeah. A retraction, to be clear, is the most. Uh, You're saying this is wrong. Get it off. This is the that's it's the, the website. There's, there's three levels for you out there of of journalism modifications. Right. Well, there's four. The first is an update. Something new has happened. You're just updating it. Right. Mm-hmm. The second is a clarification, like, hey, I wrote something. It's not untrue, but to further help you understand it, and I'm going to clarify it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there's a correction, like, I wrote something that was untrue, and here's the correct version of the, that. Then the last would be, like, you have to take the story down. The last is a, is a retraction. The whole story is so egregiously wrong that it must be removed, and we must explain why. That happens very rarely. We've done it once at Voice San Diego, and it's still a traumatic, like, I'm still upset about it, right? <laughs> you don't do that. Corrections happen a lot. If you, By the way, if you're ever looking for a credible news organization, you're trying to find out if it's credible or not, just see if they've ever run a correction. Because if they run corrections, they care about the truth. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he, he wanted a retraction, full retraction of the piece. And I, I didn't think it justified that, but I described what he wanted as him demanding a retraction. And he clarified later that he wasn't demanding. He was requesting a 
a retraction. Okay. <laughs> you, you know, and I don't think that works together. You can't request that something be <laughs> withdrawn from the yeah, public. So agreed. You're saying this is egregiously that's, wrong. That's a demand. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like, I think unless his email was like, hey, just wondering if you could retract this. No worries if not. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be like a request for a retraction. Yeah. But anything other than that, I feel like that's probably a demand. All right. You can see everything uh, in the politics report at VOSD.org slash Scott. We ran a story on Monday about uh, two women who live in a duplex in, was it Golden Hill? Yes. yes. And um, they are uh, at risk of eviction because the owner of the building is going to build a lot of affordable units. And it was a really good story about how complex this discussion is. So there's obviously the sad situation and the, the distressing and traumatic situation they find themselves in. But it's also how many units? 108 units where once there were four. Mm-hmm. So, and they're all affordable, right? No, 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 oh. no, no. Yeah, about seven, eight, nine affordable. The rest right. can be market rate. Got it. So that's all happening because of a of a law called complete communities that the city passed, right? Exactly. So the idea being that if uh, a community is close to transit uh, or a neighborhood is close to transit, it can, builders can, um, uh, and if they promise affordable units in their building, they can get a bigger building than zoning might otherwise allow. Much bigger, much bigger. And so they've taken advantage of that to get this permitted and that's what's happening there. So you have this really interesting case study of like the actual changes that occur when you, when you make these large level changes to zoning, to policy, the city and stuff. So check out her story. I think it's really good, but that complete communities plan was going forward for an update at city council that same day. I know. <laughs> what a great like timing. Obviously, we planned that for months. <laughs> um, Strategic about it. <laughs> now, things don't go to city council that are that big if there's a chance they're not going to go forward. But this didn't go forward. Yeah. So just to be clear, the, uh, the Housing Action Package 2.0, as it was called, had a lot of provisions about industrial land being turned into um, homes, parking requirements being lessened in different situations. Uh, But it had, among all of these other incentives, uh, student housing in different areas, it had two elements, Will, that turned out to be critically important and, in in fact, um, poisonous for this going forward. What were they? Okay, so the first one, touched on Catherine's story and that was an update to complete communities so the law now says if you're a developer you can buy some land that's close to transit and you can build far more units than are zoned there if you build affordable units on site so they're part of the development so this this place where Catherine's story took place in golden hill you'll get eight nine ten affordable units where previously there were only four Plus, you'll get those hundred something other market rate units. The change to complete communities was that you could build your affordable housing off site instead of on site. And not only that, but in some cases, you could build it in lower income communities than you could have before. Developers really liked this. They said it was going to allow them to develop more um, because it's strenuous to put the uh, affordable units on site. Um, other people thought, well, you know, this is a standard of fairness we need to keep because if you can put 
the affordable units in a poor community, that's kind of like redlining. So, Andrea, this was actually, again, relevant to the story Catherine Gray wrote about in our pages, which is that the women who were displaced by this or were going to be displaced by this development, those affordable units were going to be built on site. And they would actually have first right to them. Right, because they were being displaced, so they would have had first right to a newer, nicer apartment. Obviously, we're talking about like how long it takes for it to be developed. So in the sure. meantime, they'd still be thrown into chaos. But they would have been able to move back into a new unit in this new building, but still in their same neighborhood and community. So if this change went through, that would have meant that maybe, I don't know, they would have had to move somewhere else. They would still get first right of refusable to an affordable unit, but it would be that off-site unit potentially in a totally different neighborhood or and even a poorer community. It is really fascinating that we had this like case study right handy when this goes forward. Um, and I think Catherine was actually the one who informed them, right? It was, it's so new. Know. And so the they, developers didn't know the city didn't know. Well, that about the, that they would get first right of refusal. Catherine actually told oh, yeah. them they would get first right of refusal. <laughs> they didn't even know that they were sent a letter, right? From the San Diego housing commission. Yes. Um, to tell them uh, to fill out some sort of survey. And this is how they learned they were being evicted. But like nothing in that letter told them that they had this for right, first right of refusal. Mm. All right. So that was one of them, the change that would go forward that would allow developers when they do something like this to build the affordable units that they benefit from, that they get the build a bigger building from. Yes. That, that uh, those affordable units could be built elsewhere. Now, there were sort of two concerns you wrote about. I think you sort of like, it was something people had been talking about, but you did a story about it and generated a ton of conversation about it. Yes. And people were like, well, on the one hand, it might help you build more units because it'll be cheaper to buy land or whatever where you're going to do that. But on the other hand, you're going to further segregate potentially these neighborhoods and and where you put affordable units in some places, you might have more economic diversity. We're going to get rid of that. Yes, yes. And, yeah, and you know, you already had the density bonus law. So I think there have been some people crying like all these people who stopped this or NIMBYs, but you know, we we started the d- density bonus law in the first place. Like, hey, we're going to let you build really big. Yeah, you just got to commit to doing the affordable on site. A lot of people really did not like the idea of watering that down. And then there was a second issue. Second issue had to do with fee waivers. If you're a developer, you pay a lot of fees to build things. Right now, you can get a fee waiver on micro units, small studios. If I want to build a big building with small studios, I can get a whole bunch of fees waived. A lot of just developers liked that, but some developers were pushing for a fee waiver for three-bedroom units. Um, And the argument that Todd Gloria has been making is that, you know, we don't have enough homes for families in San Diego. Okay. But the pushback around that one and why it's so controversial is that people thought that was just going to give people a fee waiver on luxury units because no three room places are being built that are affordable. All the three bedroom places being built are very high end. So essentially we're just going to be subsidizing high end construction is the pushback there. Yeah, there was, I think the the more generous argument is one that Heidi Von Bloom, the city planning director, has been making since she started in the role like three or four years ago, which was if we want families to live in these more dense communities, then they're going to need places that are bigger than one bedrooms or two bedrooms. And she's been pushing to do that. I think that the issue is they were going to remove 
the fee waiver for the small units and give a fee waiver to the bigger ones. You got it. And so if they maybe just remove the fees from both, it would have been a much different thing. Right. Now, the reason the fees are so important is that's the only way we build anything in San Diego. Parks, streets, sidewalks, things that people like having in their neighborhoods are often only funded right now by these developer impact fees. That's why older neighborhoods have crappy parks and newer ones have nicer ones. It's because the newer neighborhoods have newer development impact fees that they use to build better, newer stuff. And the old neighborhoods haven't had that same type of investment. So those two concerns killed it? It seems to have come down to something about like that. You know, a few council members tried to dial back these changes. They they weren't like, get rid of these changes or we're out, but they wanted them dialed back. They didn't want you to be able to build offsite in a much poorer neighborhood. And critically, they wanted you to build that offsite to the same standard that you're building the market rate homes. Yeah, they didn't want to see a, a, a poor house compared. People, whatever. exactly. People did not like that. Well, what what I've heard is that there were a lot of conversations going on. There's some long breaks during that city council meeting. A lot of conversations going on behind closed doors. I only kind of know what they are hearsay, so I guess I won't speculate. But you can imagine that uh, various interest groups had a lot of thoughts. Now, Lopez, uh, Shawnee Rivera, the council president ended up saying a few things that caught your eye. Yeah, it was fascinating. So I think to like Will's point that there was all these changes. Uh, so Sean Eel had presented some amendments and some of the feedback to his amendments was like, we've got this really complicated package in front of us. Staff has spent hours to, you know, deliver it. And, you know, we're hesitant to kind of make changes here on the spot. And um, one of those comments came from council member Marnie Von Wilpert. You put years of work into this proposal. And this is all new, correct? All these amendments? Yes, we are seeing these amendments as of today. That is correct. Okay. Um, I am hesitant to throw these extra layers out there at this point because what we keep hearing from housing developers, affordable developers especially, is how complicated the city's programs are. So at this point, I would prefer not to have, I, I'd prefer to vote for the housing package as it is and have these go back to committee and, and think about these more so you can work with them, affordable housing developers, our planning commission can work with them, as opposed to us trying to dictate this from the, the dais on the fly. Um, so Sean's response to that was, we're a legislative body and we're supposed to legislate and feedback to these very important policies is different than input. Um, but his other interesting point was, uh, one, because someone asked, you know, we haven't seen these amendments. It would have been nice to have seen these amendments earlier and have given staff time and other people to weigh in on, you know, whether this will add more red tape. And he said this really fascinating thing. This is one of the, the challenges that we have in a, in a Brown Act world. Um, I suppose we could post potential amendments, but I'll be honest, that gives industry a chance to lobby this body and tell us what, what we shouldn't do. Um, and so there's a, a reason why I wouldn't necessarily share these last week. Um, folks with a lot of a lot of power and a lot of influence would have undoubtedly started making calls to tell us um, that we shouldn't make it more um, restrictive, um, that we shouldn't tell them the standards for which they need to do offsite. Uh, and I wasn't okay with that. Uh, that is really interesting because what he's saying is that we need to be able to, when we're up here, 
think about what we want without actually hearing some input. Because the people who are most able to provide that input on a moment's notice or when something is noticed that it might happen are going to be people with means and and deep interests in this. So on the one hand, like he's making an argument against public sort of notice of a, of a meeting because he's like, you know, it would keep us from doing something we feel is right. But on the other hand, he's 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 acknowledging just how much pressure they would get. Uh, and the power, forward. the power, the inherent in that is that these industries are so powerful that they're going to get in our ears and it's going to be hard for us to resist. I did not see that comment coming at council. I, I thought there was going to be a block of people who didn't like these controversial things, but that was very interesting. Just when it comes to the tactics, I mean, how, do, do you feel that these amendments may have had more support if 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 we're taking Marnie von Wilpert at her word? I mean, she would have preferred to see these earlier. The proof will be in the pudding because she said uh, that she kind of liked the sound of these amendments, mm-hmm. but she didn't want to support them on the fly. This bill is very likely not dead. It is very likely going to come back to land use or the council, and it's very going to likely come back with these amendments on the table. So let's see how much Marnie Von Wolpert really liked them. Yeah. So uh, you can see everything at play here, the urgency to address the housing situation and the crisis, uh, the concern about equity that goes along with it, but also does that actually hurt us from addressing the problem? It's all baked into that one issue, and you can follow it. Uh, the best way to follow it, of course, is at voicesandiego.org. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We had a member coffee the other day at Art Produce in uh, North Park. Cool venue. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I enjoyed being there. Great setting. And a lot of people wanted to talk about your investigative work (laughs) about these concession companies uh, and the nonprofits. Uh, that keep these venues going with all these concession stands with, quote, volunteers. Yes. <laughs> I love the the person who is like, my neighbor has worked there or volunteered. Totally. totally. Oh, yeah. I was has like, all right, will you stick around, sir. I need <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. What did he say? He's- he said, he volunteers. And then you asked him if he got paid. And then he said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, they were volunteers, but, <laughs> but yes. They got paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so as, as you revealed, there's... Um, at least three groups that we have found that provide this 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 support, this kind of staffing support for these venues. The idea used to be, of course, that it was so hard to get these staff because they were so uh, so much infrequent events, right? That you would you know win win get the nonprofit to bring volunteers to staff it. The nonprofit gets ten percent of the revenue, and then we get to keep these going. Totally. Uh, but when you started to build like actual events that happen all the time, these nonprofits morphed into this sort of shadow staffing system. And as you revealed, there's uh, a lot of evidence that they were paying folks both under the table and under below minimum wage. And now you have an update this week about uh, the Chula Vista Amphitheater, now known as North Island Credit Union Amphitheater. Well done. In Chula Vista. (laughs) Mouthful. That's impressive. Um, I think that's better than Sleep Train. Cricket uh, was pretty cool because you didn't have cricket. to think about the company. Coors hard to beat, though. Coors is better. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, because it, it describes the kind of beverage that you would drink at a, at a, at a locale like that. Yeah. True. 
so that that um, facility is owned by Live Nation, aka Ticketmaster. They they combined into one super company for concerts in uh-huh. 2010. And Live Nation uh, has a partnership with Legends. Now Legends provides the concession. Now Legends is also, by the way, a partner in the group that is going to redevelop the sports arena area for the city. Yeah, it's 40 acres of land there. Uh, Legends runs the concessions. You went to a concert there. I did. And not uh, for fun, for work. <laughs> I did not go to a Vinged Sevenfold for fun, exactly. <laughs> was but, it but, packed? But he found it there. Sorry, there's now, no was it one of these like, rah, 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 like or? It was like that with um, emotion and sadness. Oh, so cool. If you I can might imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> you had him at sadness. Yeah. The, the, ter- the term, Scott, is screamo. 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 Yes. Okay. Oh, emo with screaming. There you go. Yes. Wow, that is really up my alley. <laughs> well, they get very emotional. <laughs> That's basically how well, I Maybe add. Nate can weave in some some Cry of and scream. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and you went there. Now, you, the volunteers wear different shirts. Exactly, yes. They wear a shirt that's red. So I'm walking around the amphitheater, and it is a sea of red on the outside where all the concessions are. Uh, uh, upwards of 90% of the of the concession stands were wearing those red shirts, indicating they were volunteers. All right. And you talked to a man. Uh, tell us about Mr. Osuna. Yes, yeah, so uh, Mr. Osuna, Chris Osuna, he featured in one of our previous stories. He he actually runs a nonprofit himself that does not provide staffing to uh, to stadiums and venues, um, but he reached out to Legends Hospitality, who runs the concessions, and you know he had quite a message for them. He he sent them this long email, and it said, you know, I have a family member and. She's running a nonprofit and it is using my dead slain brother's name and likeness. And I don't like that because I think she's doing this all for unethical purposes. She's paying people under the table uh, a very small wage. Um, and, you know, I believe she's enriching herself through this and that your company is aiding and abetting that. That's the message he sent. And and Legends responded quickly you know he sent it to like corporate hr they sent it on to somebody else who responded to him within the hour saying she was going to investigate mm. and it doesn't appear anything happened because that it group does not kept functioning that's right that that group was you know we revealed that group was paying people under the table below minimum wage a couple of weeks ago we had some receipts to back it up. Um, and yeah, that was in 2020 when Chris Osuna sent that message. And that group continued uh, for the next three years working at Chula Vista Amphitheater. And, and as far as we know, may still be working at Chula Vista Amphitheater because legends won't really say what's going on. All they've said in the face of our reporting is that they're taking appropriate action. Uh, but yeah, it's unclear what action they took, if any, after getting his message, because he never heard from them again. Hmm. Well, you can follow this ongoing saga. It's a great one, a great investigative uh, storyline that you've been following at VOSD.org slash Will. Thanks. Well, we lost a Voice San Diego member. Obviously, that's not his 
most well-known uh, attribute. But uh, Peter Seidler, the owner of the Padres, actually he was the chairman of the ownership group, so he just had a stake in the Padres and had been chosen as chairman of the group of people who have stakes in the Padres. But he was uh, also a, um, uh, a really interesting figure. When he did take over that chairmanship, he uh, spent a lot of money, invested a lot of money, but he also seemed to lead an organization that was trying to do, I think, something uh, interesting. So we always have this like side of San Diego that feels kind of JV, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it doesn't feel like it's like, it's always, it, people are always like, for instance, we should do something that is like the opera house as opposed to, and very rarely coming up with like our own version of an opera house, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, there's, yeah, in the tech world, there's some of that. There's some true like next level innovation, the military world, certainly. There's the but, nonprofit news world. But it's like that joke we had before. It's like this, it's going to blow idea. We've always been like sort of underneath the, the radar of like trying to, trying to really stand out on the map as a city that's not just a nice place to be with good weather, right? Yeah, it's always kind of felt like the biggest little town, right? right? Like it, it, it does have this almost provincial you know, aspect to it. That we reinforce by having these kind of conversations. <laughs> there right, you go. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I think what was, what was really interesting about what Seidler did as he ran the Padres was he wanted to build something truly excellent, mm-hmm. like truly... Uh, remarkable beyond just what would be expected for a city like San Diego and even expected for any city in the major league sort of universe. And with the Petco Park the way it was and uh, embracing the fan beloved ideas like the brown uniforms uh-huh. and, and but just mostly just dumping and investing a ton of money into the product, into something sort of excellent. So that's what everybody's talking about, obviously. Uh, the world of baseball is 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 buzzing about this, but I just want to mention like there was a whole other thing going on with Peter Seidler. Like he would, uh, he was very impacted by the homelessness crisis. He spent a lot of time walking the streets, talking to people, to the point where in 2017 he got so upset about what was happening that he started putting significant amounts of money into it, but also hosting a weekly discussion among city leaders. There'd be city council members there. There'd be housing activists. There'd be formerly homeless people. There would be um, people working in the sector. There'd be housing people. There'd be people talking about policy of cost of living issues every week. And and without fail, they would meet either in his office or in another more, if some of them were more like symposium type things, all private, like trying not to like make a big deal about what mm-hmm. it, because he was like desperately trying to, identify or help them identify what kind of solutions might make a difference and obviously housing and and homelessness has not been fixed in that time Um, but I think it's pretty fair to say that there are a lot of people who might be alive or at least are better off because of the urgency that he brought um, to this issue Mm -hmm. and and that you need people like that not just to like give money or put their name on buildings or whatever, or or you know, give grants, but to also just like demand urgency, and I think that's what like is kind of special. So I think um, I, I I felt really sad when I when I heard the news because of I'd gotten to know him a little bit, but also just because I there there are so few people really standing out in this community. It'd be very easy to own a a, a club like that. Just go to the box, 
you know, extract from it, take from it. Yeah. And I think, you know, he, he, he saw that he had to like really put something into the city as well. And, um, it's, uh, it's really sad that we would lose him at 63. That's too young. Uh, there's probably, there should have been another 20 years of, uh, of that. And I hope that the people who take over the Padres, but also who take over this initiative and the other things that he was working on from diabetes and cancer research and such, I, I hope people step up and, and provide that same kind of leadership because that urgency, that, that's what this community I think lacks is like, you can grouse about leadership and you know, special you know, statues or architectural marvels <laughs> or whatever, but the real thing that we lack is this like just sense of urgency that we need to do things fast mm. and big and bold to change the trajectory of some of the worst problems here. And um, and I think he he represented urgency not just in baseball but in in all these other aspects. Well, you know, I think the pickleballers would agree with you. <laughs> it's true. Like there's there's every every issue uh, uh, benefits from somebody you know being kind of a, a maniac about its urgency. You know, and and I will say I, I I have not ever been a huge baseball fan. I I've I've gotten more excited about baseball since I worked here just because everybody here is kind of insane about it. But it was incredible to see the degree of like love and affection and admiration that just fans had for an owner. I mean, that just seems so foreign. Yeah. Yeah. You know, especially in this era of just total asshole owners that, that just abound in, in professional sports. It was incredible to see somebody who really did, through his actions seem to demonstrate a true you know affection and for this city yeah. and and for a city that 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 I think has long been in desperate need of of that sort of affection yeah, yeah there was like a mural painted of him right. the night the night of his of, yeah of, uh, of, I know yeah. my friend went over to Petco Park and yeah. just kind of paid her respects yeah well uh RIP to Peter Seidler um uh, he supported voice but he was also just such a important and um special figure in San Diego so uh our thoughts to his um, colleagues his family his kids and um and everybody out there and um if you've been thinking about taking taking a stance a leader position showing your own urgency about something you're concerned about you only live once Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego that has member events in places like Art Produce. Thanks to everybody who came this week. We are the most popular public affairs podcast that does those kinds of things in San Diego. Subscribe to the Morning Report to keep up with everything we're doing and following in local news and our latest stories. You can see that and our full lineup of newsletters at vosd.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and our chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is our managing editor. Jacob McQuinney is our education reporter. Will Huntsbury is our senior investigative reporter. Nate Johns, our excellent producer. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.